0: Are listening to 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia, Mid Missouri's source for in depth news, diverse talk, and music of the world. It is so much more than radio. It is your community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxon and I hope you're able to spend the next hour with us as we take a dive into the True False Film Fest. This is the first time that Speaking of the Arts has been broadcast live since before last year's lockdown. But as the True False Film Fest is once again lighting up screens, albeit outdoor ones that are safely distanced apart, and as several directors have made a long voyage to Colombia, it seemed like, for this week at least, we'd get together in the studio and do a live show. At this point we are at the beginning of day 3 of True Falses' 5-day event at Stevens Lake Park, which means there are still multiple opportunities to see films, hear music and do a ton of free stuff, like visit the Traveling Audio Storytelling Booth, which is starting its whole trip around Missouri right here at the fest, or visit Como Square where there's a both a shopping village plus a range of things to snack upon. And if you haven't already purchased film tickets, they are still available and you can buy those at the box office, which is at Reichman Pavilion at the north part of Stevens Lake Park, as well as online at truefalse.org. Today, I am thrilled to have two directors visiting us at the KOPN studios. One is a festival veteran who is back this year with the third in his trilogy of films set in Oakland, California, which explore the relationship between education, criminal justice and the healthcare system in America. He is Peter Nix. For the second director, this is her first film festival ever, and she is here with a short called Club Quarantine. Aurora Brackman will be joining me later in the show. We'll also play a couple of tracks from guitarist Yasmin Williams, if we have time, who released her second album earlier this year and chatted to me on Speaking of the Arts back in January from her home in Virginia. She is also the composer of the music Restless Heart that opens and closes this show. But first this morning, I am so delighted to welcome to the show the director of a movie called Homeroom, Peter Nix. Good morning, Peter.
1: Hi, Diana. How are you?
0: I am well and so glad that you're here. We chatted very briefly when you were here in 2017, but I just I just saw you at one yeah, of the theatres and recognized you, yeah. <laughs> I told you how much I loved Thank The Force. You. but you know. So the release of Homeroom marks the end of over a decade of work on your Oakland trilogy from The Waiting Room, released in 2012, The Force in 2017, and now Homeroom, <laughs> which received its world premiere at this year's Sundance Virtual Sundance Film Festival. So before we get into the details of Homeroom, Room. Let me back up a little bit and ask you what sparked the trilogy of why Oakland?
1: Well, I went to the journalism program. I studied documentary film at the UC Berkeley journalism program. Um, came out there in 97 from DC. I went to Howard University in DC and uh, my wife and I both applied to grad school and she got into Cal State Hayward, East Bay, and uh, I got into Berkeley. So we moved out and uh, went through the program and you know kind of fell in love with the area and mine three years in new york i've lived out there since ever since so over 20 years and um so at this point it's been the place that you know i've been longer than anywhere else and kind of recognized immediately that oakland in particular was a, a city, an American city that really re- reflected the nation in so many ways, both in its diversity, its challenges, um, and it's kind of hopeful spirit, um, and trying to sort of move into the future while also, you know, standing up for matters of social justice. And, um, I just kind of in my, in my bones felt like it was a great stage. hadn't really formulated the idea of doing a series of films set in Oakland, but, um, Bono, we we both graduated about the same time, and her first job uh, was at Highland Hospital. Um, she's a speech pathologist, and she would come home and talk to me and tell me stories about her patient population. And she's a refugee from Laos, and a lot of the um, the patient population there are refugees. Um, people speak multiple languages, or lo- locals who don't have health insurance who call this hospital basically their primary care physician, the waiting room actually becomes their primary care physician. And so I got very interested in, um, the community story through her perspective and and felt like there was a lot of storytelling there. And it was also at the, at the same time, this was in 2007 when the health, the the healthcare debate was raging. It was before Obama was elected, before the affordable care act was passed. And it was a big question about, you know, what are the values of our country? Like, how should we deliver health care to our, our citizens? And um, it as an institution, um, is, it, is it functioning the way it should for our community? And so that really began um, the, the long journey of. Uh, and then when we started making that film and hanging out in the waiting room, the, one of the first people I talked to was a young girl who had been shot outside her uh, middle school About a half a mile from the hospital and she wasn't in in class. She was in the the waiting room waiting for hours to get treated for a gunshot wound. And so I started thinking about her story and, you know, the arc of uh, and the connections between um, access to healthcare, the criminal justice system, the education system, these pillars of our communities. And and that's kind of when the trilogy was born
0: there is a, a director called frederick wiseman who made a lot of films in the 60s and 70s and he kind of had a a trilogy of films that looked at healthcare system the police and education is this a, an updated version almost of what he made are you kind of revisiting some of the issues that he haven't changed in 60 years
1: yeah what i mean wiseman and we, we 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 digitize hospital like the movie like our editor lawrence larue uh very gifted editor he uh we got the film, we digitized and we like fully (laughs) analyzed it. And of course, you know, I went, I just, you know, I went through film school studying documentary film. So who do you, who do you study? You know, all the pioneers of direct cinema, Maisel's, you know, Wiseman. And, and I love that style of storytelling, immersive, um, sort of non-polemic, you know, allowing, allowing the audience to experience and walk in someone else's shoes. And, that style just really, I was drawn to that. And I, I'm also a cinematographer and, and so, um, Wiseman was always on our mind, but while I love Wiseman, um, I find some of his films, they're very long, number one, but they're also very, very almost like, like clinical and some of them are in, are in sort of black and white. And what, what, what I wanted to do with, with this work was to try to maybe update it for, for, you know, um, I don't want to say a younger audience necessarily, but I wanted to. We called it. We call our approach Wiseman with words, and and with the waiting room, we actually used a little bit of voiceover. We did some things that are anathema to, you know, pure direct cinema approach, like pure verite doesn't have any lighting. It's like it's kind of like dogma, you know, like Lars von Trier's right. kind of thing. And so we we gave ourselves permission to do things like add music when appropriate, or do use voiceover when appropriate, with the goal of trying to you know flesh out the full depth and dimensions of, of these these characters and and placing them in the context of these institutions. And, and what would that reveal? And, and so that was sort of the the premise.
0: Well, tell us a little bit about Homeroom.
1: Homeroom, um, you know, we, we had finished the first two films of The Waiting Room. And we naturally segued into The Force because there was a, building conversation around the relationship between community and police. The Oakland police department was in an active process of trying to reform. They were under federal oversight. They granted us access. We made, we, it made sense to make that movie at that time in the wake of Ferguson and, and the rise of the black lives matter movement. And after that, that film, um, actually I got attached to direct a, a big Hollywood movie with Fox searchlight about, a a, a police scandal in Boston and, had been working on that for a couple of years and was all set to, we were all set to shoot. And then in classic Hollywood fashion, it it fell apart. And my producer from the first two films kind of nudged me and said, you should really finish the trilogy, Linda Davis. And she had taken a break from, from filmmaking. And, uh, and so I started thinking about um, that theme or like, there's been a lot of documentaries about high schools and what will we be adding to that? Sort of genre, so to speak. And, um, you know, I had two kids at the time. My daughter, um, we were going through a very rough time with my daughter. And I started thinking about some of the seminal films from my childhood Breakfast Club and all the John Hughes movies and <laughs> Ferris Bueller's Day Off and all these things and realized that um, they were all from a particular point of view, sort of white suburban kids. And I started thinking about, ooh, what, what if you um, did that? So took that same approach, but it's it's kids in Oakland who are, you know, kids of color, kids refugees, et cetera. So um, that's that was really when the idea was born, um, paired with sort of the struggles that we were having um, with my daughter who was in the Oakland um, public, public school system, and um, and then we were about to start shooting, and our daughter passed away. And so, um, and she, she had been struggling with bipolar and depression for many years and she, 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 um, overdosed and passed away. And we, the first instinct was to just cancel the whole project, but I just, something pushed me forward is probably Karina pushed me forward. You know, she was very, and is her, in her spirit, very, um, dynamic. I mean, she was one of these kids in, in, in the movie. She was very act politically active. She was, you know, <laughs> highly woke to the point where it was very difficult to parent her. And, um, you know, I started thinking about, um, and in, in a way telling her story, using this film to kind of tell her story and decided just to keep going. And it took me several months and Sean Havy, my producer took over the shooting. Cause I usually shoot my own films. He, he shot it. And my, uh, associate producer, Gabby Arviso, who went to Oakland high school, who was a graduate of Oakland high school. Um, And Maya Overstreet, who's our production assistant, they really were the ones in in those initial months kind of getting the uh, trust, building the trust with the the students and trying to figure out how we were going to tell the story of this, this, the class of 2020. And, um, and then it's just kind of unfolded from there.
0: Was there a degree of solace being around all of these young students who were your daughter's contemporaries?
1: It, it was very difficult. And initially I didn't spend a lot of time at the school. I kind of met the kids and met a lot of the teachers and kind of got a sense of what we knew we wanted a student leader and we, that we met Donaldson early on, actually. And so we, we created some frameworks. Um, and then we actually f- there's this program, this space called Chop 55, which didn't make it into this version of film because of what happened in the year. We had to cut out some stuff, but it was basically a counseling center for kids who are struggling emotionally with depression, anxiety, et cetera. And, um, there's, we recognize that there's been an increase in mental health, uh, challenges that young people are facing. Not sure why, um, upticks in suicide, upticks in overdoses. Um, and a lot of these kids don't have access to healthcare. And so the the, the, the services that the school provides are what they have. And so we, we were spending a lot of time there. And then as the project kind of went on, I just kind of felt that push to kind of honor, you know, my daughter's life and honor her spirit by telling the story of these kids. And some I didn't know until last month, but Jessica Ramos, who's in the film, um, was good friends with Karina's best friend who went to Oakland tech. And so the, I knew there were connections there. And initially I was sort of asking her, Oh, did, did you know my daughter? And, um, but I didn't go too deep into it cause it was just so painful in the beginning. Um, but seeing like last night, seeing the kids on the stage and well, they're not kids anymore. <laughs> they're young leaders, you know, and, um, but seeing them on that stage, uh, you know, I could see my daughter. And, and so that, that's something that, um, is giving me, you know, a lot of, um, I'm not going to say peace necessarily, but it just, it, it, you know, the fact that they th- these young people are out there on the front lines addressing some of society's most urgent, um, needs is incredibly inspiring and hopeful. And, and that's, that's the feeling. You know, I think when you're dealing with grief and a tragedy, you need to find hope somewhere. Uh, and I think individually, but sort of collectively, we're experiencing this grief and loss after so with covid and with all all the political division in our country we're all searching for something to look forward to um and that's really um that's given me a lot of strength you know as i go through my own personal journey and um also as i am am a part of this co- this collective that we're all sort of going through this thing that we're all going through
0: I mean obviously going into this you started filming this in 2019 you were going to film an entire school year nobody nobody saw covid coming so halfway through this film which is on has its own arc you've developed the storyline you know it's about student activism we're talking about the Oakland the police that are in the school district and how the students are trying to fight that and the issues that they're having suddenly You get hijacked by this major event. And it's really the first film that I've seen that has this before and after, this kind of bridge between the before and the after worlds. And I was, you know, curious how you were going to deal with that. I started to watch the film. First of all, part of my brain is thinking, I just want to tell them what's coming. You know, like you can you can see the car crash coming, but you can't Tell them. But yeah. also, I thought that y- it was very interesting how you handled this seismic change in the world pretty moderately. Talk a little bit about that discussion, how you were going to deal with that and how it changed the film.
1: It it was really, you know, and I was so deep in my own grief in my own process that in some ways it might not have affected me in, in the same way that it would have. Um, And this is after actually the force. It was similar with with the force. We were turning along, making a movie about this police department trying to reform. They were having success. And we were actually worried. We were starting to feel like, oh, man, like, people are (laughs) gonna think that this is BS. Like, there's no way that this department... And then the sex scandal happened like late in, in the editing process where we had gotten into Sundance. And we had to recut the whole movie like a few months before Sundance. And so there are echoes of that with this. But this felt bigger. And it, and it felt um, so disconnected from what we were Originally trying to do, but also connected because we were originally, it wasn't really about student activism per se, even though we wanted to follow one of the student leaders um, coming of age, you know, in a political way, finding his voice and what that meant and what that looked like. But we were always very interested in this emotional what is it like to be a young person today mm-hmm. in a rapidly changing world? And that was what the film we, I put what the film was about on the wall at the beginning of a project. And I always refer back to that so that we can stay on track. And that phrase remains on the wall and it, and it still worked even after cause everything changed. And, um, we just had to allow the film to be what it was and try to, we, we knew we didn't want to make the COVID film we knew we didn't want to make the activist film, but we knew it would be somewhere in between. And, and not all of the young people in the movie were activists. Um, and and it, there was an ensemble cast. And so we had to try to figure out what did this movie really want to be? And it, 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 in the end, in the collision of the upright, you know, George Floyd, and this this sort of, even though Oakland has been fighting this fight since the Black Panthers, social justice, police, community, The world awakened, you know, after George Floyd and that, um, you know, while they were simultaneously trying to push forward their own initiative that they had been working on before this great awakening had happened, that they they were ahead of the world in so many ways. And we found that to be remarkable. And so that really became the driving um, proposition, the value proposition of the movie for us and all the editing choices that we made came after that reflection of what is this movie, you know, really, really about here? And it was about these, these young people coming of age and sort of a lost and found idea, like in this great loss, how they found, found their voices, um, despite. And we found that to be really powerful.
0: I feel like one of the characters in the documentary is social media how huge a role that plays in their own understanding of themselves, their contemporaries, the world around them and the world beyond them, like how fast global events were reaching them. Can you talk a little bit about how much of that you included and, and why?
1: That was a character from the very beginning. And it, You know, if COVID hadn't happened and George Floyd hadn't happened, you know, those are big ifs. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. I mean, George Floyd was inevitable. You know, maybe even COVID was inevitable, you know, but, um, I guess you could have predicted George Floyd before you could have predicted COVID, but we always knew we wanted to explore, you know, the, the, these sort of, you know, I don't, how do you describe it? Like these two worlds of young people, how they have a world inside social media, and then they have their world outside or their, 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 how they Show themselves and present themselves on social media, and then their internal emotional world, and oftentimes those are different, at odds, you know. And um, that device, and also trying to give a little bit of a little bit of insight into how education has just radically changed for young people. You know, when I grew up, your relationship with your teacher was—I'm hey, not going to say old-fashioned, but you kind of. You know, in different schools were different, but, you know, listen to your teacher. There was an authority there that you kind of like felt they know well, they're teaching me, your parents. But now young people, and we discovered this with my daughter um, when we began getting concerned and in going into her social media, that the depth and how it splintered out and sort of um, you couldn't control the dialogue and the interactions and the experiences, it was almost like Lord of the Flies. You know, like the, the young people are coming of age with each other absent any adult supervision, input, guidance in ways that are powerful and profound and uh, that I don't think most adults understand. And so in that, in that way, their relationship to the education system is radically changed. Um, and you see this often in college where you see young people challenging professors. Now you see these things on YouTube going viral. Now it's TikTok. But, you know, and, and that we, we knew we wanted to kind of capture that in some way. And you saw that with the organization, how they're able to organize that massive march was organized by a few young people, turned into thousands of people. So we, we found that to be very powerful and, and profound. So in some ways, we we wanted to speak to, you know, adults who have a very hard time today understanding young people both parents um, educators and people who are in charge of institutions that affect the the sort of lives of young people particularly the education system
0: that really struck me i felt like i was glimpsing a world of which I had no idea. And it was a parallel world in the one I live in. And these, these were young people who maybe would be looking after me in my old age, and I had n- no point of interaction with them. That was, that was kind of disturbing and profound to see that.
1: It's really remarkable. And there's very, very few parents have the bravery, I think, the courage, to sort of go into their kids' social media. But if they did, they would be like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. And, you know, what do you do about it, though? You cannot really control it. And and kids have, you know, they have like multiple, they've got their regular Instagram account that you see, but they have what are called spam accounts. I don't know why it's called that, but it's, it's, it's the account where the, like the real stuff goes down, you know, and, and odd things like they they communicate with themselves, like their spam account, we'll talk to their, their forward facing account, the one that maybe their parents or a teacher or you or I would see. And they talk to each other in, in ways that are fascinating. We discovered this with my daughter and we, you know, it was a head scratcher and there's a, there's a whole grammar and a, and a sort of ecosystem in a, in a, in a, 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 it's like a universe that only the kids really understand. And, and an adult, an adult who goes in tr- tries to sort of see it. Um, and, and just sort of how kids are, finding their voices and exploring their sexuality and sort of all the things that as adults that we're concerned about are happening in there in, in, in a way that's just sort of um, wild and untamed, you know, and trying to make sense of that from an adult point, point of view is, um, is very challenging. But first and foremost, I think it represents this notion of um, – you know, and this is how the young people feel not heard, not, not understood. Um, and, we, you know, I got into many debates with my daughter about what she was posting on social media and they like, look dad, you don't understand. Like you don't understand. You need to like, just listen, you know, or you need, you need to, you know, um, not judge me, you know? So I think, um, it's just an, it's an ongoing thing that I think we, we have to keep our eye on their films are delving into like the social uh, dilemma was a film that really looked at the impact of social media on, on young people's emotional health. Um, but what we found was that it does, there are both concerning things about it and also powerfully, um, um, I don't want to say healing, but you know, social media can be a place where they can support each other, where, where where they can get help sort of for, for their, what what they're going through emotionally with their peers in, in ways that are very powerful.
0: Talk to me a little bit about access. The thing that stood out for me watching The Force was how on earth the Oakland Police Department had agreed to let you follow them around for two years. Mm-hmm. And in Homeroom, you're following children. Yeah. So, what was that process of, of approval and access like
1: well, for the this fo- film? Well, The Force, they, they were like, hey, you know. We're doing. A, we think we're doing a great job, and our story's not being told because this is at a time when cops were just getting the short end. You know, everybody hates hates cops, and and they were actually a model for reform in the nation. The first department to deploy body worn cameras, um de- department wide, and so that was, I think, why they let us in there. Plus, I had made the waiting room, and that that film did really well, and people respected that film for its humanity and its sort of non judgmental approach. And I basically told them that that's how I was going to approach this. I wasn't going to make a commercial for the department. I was going to, whatever happened was going to be documented, but that, um, you know, I was open to sort of just being with police officers and trying to understand what it's like to be, to be a cop. Um, with, with homeroom, the, the trick became, it was a big ethical question in terms of which we also faced, with the waiting room. But what we found in the waiting room was that people wanted to tell their story, even if they were discussing private medical um, situations or revealing very difficult that they had a deep need to tell their story because their story wasn't being told similar to what the Oakland police department felt with, with homeroom, you're dealing with young people and then they have parents and then there's the teachers and there's a lot of stakeholders who are protective of these young people. So we, we had to do a lot of work, which we think had been done with the first two films in terms of here, here's our body of work and here's, this is who we are as storytellers. Um, We did a lot of work before we started shooting. I always do like hanging out, building relationships, building trust. The fact that Gabby, our associate producer went to Oakland high was, was helpful. Um, And all, all that, all that work. um, I think, helped get the act because there's the institutional access, which is getting the school district to sign off on it. But then there's the, the day to day, the actual access to, to people. And uh, are they comfortable with what you're doing? And so we, you know, we just developed a routine and for any student that we felt was starting to become a more major character, we contacted their, their parents or a guardian immediately and let them know like what we were doing and if they had any questions and what our, our intentions were. We worked with, um, Mentors that they, a lot of the uh, student leaders had mentors who were activists who were very protective and very consciously aware of media manipulate, what media can do and how it can manipulate. And so we had to um, work with them, um, which was not always easy. But um, somehow it's just, it, it developed a natural flow. And then, especially once sort of crisis hit, that once you hit a crisis, then it's just unfolding. And then that oftentimes crisis reveals so much truth and authenticity and and that that is sort of embedded in the the film.
0: Were there any scenes that you were asked to take out because people were unhappy with how they were portrayed or a particular incident?
1: No, no, we didn't have um, anything like that. We thought, you know, we could be in a very difficult situation when we started... um, recording some of the counseling sessions with the kids, like I have girls are sexually assaulted, you know, kids are suicidal. um, Kids are suffering from depression, anxiety. Um, That, that film actually, we we still may be making uh, that film. uh, Maybe at Oakland high, we're exploring it. um, Just from my own desire to sort of, you know, tell the story of adolescent mental health and how our system is basically broken Right. But we we never quite got to that point because of everything that happened w- with COVID, and so all that material, none of that material made it into the into the film. And we did have some discussions with the kids about drug use, and like we had one 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 character in particular who you know he's smoking weed every day, and and uh, obviously marijuana is legal in a lot of places now, but not <laughs> you know not not if you're seventeen. So right. uh, you know we we had those discussions. We met with the parents and. um you know, everybody felt comfortable with what we were doing. And, uh, you know, it was more about what we didn't include in the movie because there were, there were other things like the students had this big initiative vote at 16 where they were, um, advocating for, uh, 16 and, and older to be able to vote on the school board. And they actually passed that. And that wasn't in the film uh, it, it because of our narrative reasons we had to focus on the police, um, uh, abolition issue. But, um, So, yeah, it was more more about what was not in the film and fully telling the story rather than, you know, removing things.
0: And that brings up a little bit the question of of, uh, bias in documentary making. I mean, you are, I don't know how many hours of footage you have, but probably hundreds and hundreds. And in the end, we see 90 minutes. So even though you are being objective in terms of you're filming things that are real happening real people real conversations you as the filmmaker are then making a decision about what you're showing and how it's stitched together so there is bias
1: oh yeah (laughs) and you know it's it's bias driven by fear which I, i haven't quite fully evolved yet to becoming a fearless auteur filmmaker maybe that's something i can aspire to and what that means to me, and I, I, I do know some artists who are like this, who are like, you know, <laughs> F the audience or not, not, not in a mean way, but, but more like I'm going to, you know, honor something deeper that I'm, that I'm trying to tell. Uh, I I am trying to sort of like create a narrative that's compelling and engaging and then has, has the audience, you know, sort of leaning, leaning in. So a lot of the decisions I make are driven by does this work narratively and that balance between what was actually happening versus a narrative structure that works you know and it's um i mean unless you're going to make a and that's why wiseman's films are sometimes 10 hours 10 hours long is because he's really i think you know uh, trying to reflect as much as possible the authenticity of what was there. But the reality is even, even though Wiseman's film may be 10 hours, like he probably filmed 300 hours, you know? And so there's all, there are always choices to make and those choices are driven by a lot of things. But for me, I I have an intention, an intention of being, um, allowing the film to make the decisions as much as possible. Should there be a piece of music here? Let the film decide the waiting room, very little music, the Force had more of a cinematic score. This film had a couple, it had actual an original song that we did for it because we felt that reflected the kids' world and and those were the choice. We made the choices based on what we felt the film, you know, wanted to be based on what we experienced um, being on the ground, meeting the kids, understanding what was happening. And that that is an intentional thing. And to me, that's the closest thing you could get to what what you might call objectivity. Um, but, yeah, there are many, many hard cho- choices when you've shot 200 and I think we shot 250 hours.
0: I guess the proof is is the people that are in the documentary, when they watch it, if they feel like they have been fairly portrayed. And I'm guessing that they did.
1: Sometimes it depends. And, it te- you know, you know, if you're telling um, the force, there was some mixed feelings about that. You know, you go over to the Oakland Police Department today. A lot of the officers respected the film, loved the film for its authenticity, its truth. Uh, and other officers, you know, didn't like it so much because it revealed the sex scandal. And so that that really, you don't always want to just make the people that you document feel good, just like, you know, the the young woman who filmed uh, Officer Chauvin. I'm sure he doesn't feel good about that. And so documenting, um, it, it's a huge responsibility. And you do have to sort of disassociate yourself from this need to for your subjects to 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 like the film but i think if you tell tell the truth even if it's a hard truth people respect you for it and and at the end of the day that's more uh, i'm more concerned about that um but this film is it's probably the most hopeful an uplifting film I've made of the, of the, of the trilogy, arguably the waiting room in a different way. It was a very stark, difficult film, but it had a humanity to it. That was powerful. This film, you know, the hopefulness of the students and their voice and how they, what they found out of what they lost to me was, was remarkable and something that, you know, I hope audiences and and the kids themselves you can tell that they're just energized by seeing a reflection of their work cuz you don't how often do you get that perspective on on what on what you're doing you don't often get that and so it's been amazingly gratifying for me as a filmmaker to see the impact that it's had on them and hopefully that will inspire other other young people So
0: they feel like you portrayed them fairly they're happy the students in the film are happy
1: with the end result oh yeah it's been amazing watching them respond to the film and seeing their energy on the stage for instance last night at the park was and seeing the reaction to to people for the first time to them we were we were so sad that we couldn't you know share the film with audiences at sundance and um but you know it's it's a film about covid so it's it's appropriate but we're hoping that down the line we'll be able to do some screenings in Oakland, and um, it's been picked up by Hulu, so it'll be shared with audiences um, that way, but really this is a film that does its best work in a sense in, in, in community and, and shared um, in, in a theatrical environment where, where where the kids can be there and speak and the audience can interact with them and be inspired and, and see them. So we're hoping we can do a little bit more of that.
0: Well, the one unfortunate thing about us talking today <laughs> is that your film's three showings at this year's True False Film Fest have actually already happened. So that's a bit bad timing. So Hulu is where people will be able to see it. Do you have yes. a sense of when that will be streaming?
1: They um, probably will release it around August. Um, and then there's going to be some other virtual fest where people can catch it. Cause I think now with the virtual fest, you can get like tickets. Um, Like I think it's, it's going to be at full frame Nantucket. um, And then yeah, Hulu will pick it up in August. So, and then they also acquired the whole trilogy, which is amazing. Um And so they'll be able to package and present the waiting room, the forest and the homeroom together. in in context of the, you know, the work that, that we've been doing in Oakland over the last 10 years.
0: Well my guest for the past half hour has been documentary filmmaker Peter Nix, director of The Waiting Room, The Force and Now Home Room. Peter, thank you so much for taking time to chat today and for coming Thanks, to be here in reality.
1: I, I was telling David Wilson, I was like, this is so special. And it's like <laughs> we all need this, you know. Yeah. And we're gonna we're gonna, you know, step carefully into into this next phase. But uh, I'm so grateful that, you know, I could show the film and share it with Columbia.
0: Me too. Earlier this year, the guitarist Yasmin Williams released her third album, Urban Driftwood. I say guitarist, but Yasmin also plays the kalimba, the fiendishly difficult cora, and hand taps and foot taps her polyrhythms. She made her debut in Columbia at the 2019 Dismal Niche Music Festival and then came back last March for the 2020 True False, when she also came on this show. Back in January, when her album launched, we caught up on this show and uh, she ended up being the whole show because she was so delightful. And she's back in town this weekend, so I thought we'd segue. Into our next guest with a piece from her latest album, and this is the title track called Urban Driftwood. And that was Yasmin Williams with the title track, Urban Driftwood, from her latest album, Urban Driftwood. And you can hear her this weekend at the True False Film Fest. When the world went into lockdown last year and the stock price of Zoom skyrocketed, a plethora of new virtual hangouts opened up. For many in the LGBTQ community, the loss of the real-world club scene took away a vital, safe space. But four Toronto-based friends and DJs quickly saw the need to create a virtual club space for the queer community and their allies, and Club Quarantine was born. For filmmaker Aurora Brackman, who tells stories about intimacy and relationships between families and communities, Club Quarantine was a space she decided to turn into a documentary short. And I am so delighted that she is here with us today. Good morning, Aurora. Good morning. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Well, although this is not your first piece of cinematography, this is your first ever film festival in person. Mm -hmm. So thank you for choosing us. It's so exciting. Mm -hmm. Thank (laughs) you for having me. I'm so
2: thrilled. I really didn't think. I'd have the opportunity to be in person in a long, long time, so this is amazing. Did they have to twist your arm to get you here? Oh no, I was like, begging, a- I was like, please, <laughs> I'll buy my flight, just please let me come.
0: <laughs> well, as I said, we should qu- clarify, this is not your first films, but mm-hmm. it is the first um, uh, one of the, f- uh, not even the first film festival, because you've been this featured is, at other festivals. This is the first
2: festival that Club Quarantine has been at, and this is the first festival I've ever been to in person, because all my I'm in grad school and my first ever films were all released in the pandemic. And so this is my first ever
0: film festival in person or ever having a screening. I've never had a screening before. So when when your genre is mostly short form documentary, I mean, how critical is the film festival circuit to your career?
2: Oh, it's huge. I mean, this is the way that we build relationships and like find community, especially as a documentary filmmaker, because you often are working alone or with a very small team. And film festivals are the opportunity for us to, meet each other and feel a sense of community when you work in isolation so often or so I've been told <laughs> because this is really my first one um so it, it's amazing
0: that true false is happening this year so that we can create a semblance of that again it, it is it's amazing to all of us I mean they've worked so hard to make this happen so club quarantine I gave a brief description in my intro but tell us exactly what it is yes yeah,
2: so um Club Quarantine is a queer online dance party that emerged after the pandemic began, like a few weeks after the lockdowns began. And the film itself is this sort of immersive experience in the world of that club. Um, The club used to take place every single night for between two and six hours a night. And uh, there was usually about... A thousand people would come, but there was a core group of maybe a hundred people that would come every single night. And as I was making this film, I became one of those people. And I attended the party every single night for two months as I made the film. And I was really just eat, sleep, breathing, this virtual club. It was, it really consumed me, but it also became my coping mechanism. I mean, I was all alone. I was doing school online. Um, I, I'm a student at Stanford and the Bay Area was the first place to have a shelter in place order. So it was really unprecedented. We we didn't know what was going to happen. And I really was stuck in my room for months. And every single night I would join this club and it was my escape. Um, Yeah. And and it was a beautiful place to be. And it was an amazing thing to like document this community that was emerging in the middle of the pandemic. Yeah.
0: So it's it's broadcast over Zoom. Mm -hmm. So we're all familiar with Zoom. Lots of little windows and you're in people's living rooms and everybody is... Listening to the same dance track and then responding in whatever way is meaningful to them, whether that's sitting and doing a puzzle or <laughs> hanging from the ceiling yes. or just dancing or dressing up and yes. you could see people's living rooms or their backdrops. So. Yeah. I mean, you can't get a thousand people on one screen at once. I mean, mm-hmm. are you just uh, scrolling around? and It's really interesting. So the party has this
2: um, this thing called spotlighting where the host of the party will scroll through like the pages and pages and pages. And if they find someone who's doing something like, I don't know, you know, maybe they're like twerking or maybe they're in the middle of like a bite of pizza or whatever it is, they'll spotlight you so they you become the main screen that everyone sees. Mm-hmm. And then that person in response would be like, oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah. like I'm on the screen and then they start dancing and so it's sort of it's this really cool like interactive thing and then there's also a chat because obviously we all know how Zoom works and so everyone's in the chat like yes go off you know like we love you or that pizza looks good you know whatever it is and so you kind of build this community it's very unusual but it does become very interactive and then people are trying to get spotlighted so they'll be trying to do the wildest thing in their Zoom box with the hopes that they'll be broadcast to the rest of the party.
0: How long when you are spotlighted how Mm -hmm. long are you spotlighted for
2: um it depends on if you're doing something noteworthy in your spotlight so sometimes it would be like 10 seconds but if you're doing something really fun that people are into and you're getting like a good response from the chat then maybe it'll be longer and then sometimes there'll be there'll be themes like it'll be like oh it's almost like a kiss cam like at like a baseball game or something like there'll be a couple obviously they're a couple and so they'll kiss and then it's like you spotlight somebody else two people who are just sitting there not really. Paying attention, and it'll be like, oh, I guess you two have to kiss, and you know, sometimes there'll <laughs> be like themes that sort of spread, or it's just amazing. This whole other kind of like language and culture emerged from this party. Um, yeah, yeah. So it depends. It depends.
0: So how did you come across it?
2: Um So I, <laughs> not in a very interesting way. I was actually listening to this podcast called Nancy. It's a WNYC podcast. Um, like. That talks about different queer things, and in the pandemic, I started going a lot of really long walks alone and listening to podcasts because what else are you going to do? And uh, it was one of was probably the first week or so of the lockdown, and they had a segment on um, what queer people are doing to cope with the pandemic, and there was one about club quarantine, and I I was I was like, hey, that sounds like fun. I'm I'm you know I'm stuck in my room. I mean I am already on Zoom quite a bit, but um, so I joined, and it was just mesmerizing. I mean, it was incredible. I had never seen anything like it. You get these little peeks into all these different worlds. And I saw the most amazing things in this club. Like I saw a couple propose to one another. Yeah. Like right there, they proposed on Zoom in front of, obviously as they were spotlighted. (laughs) I, um, there was a woman who was in the hospital with her newborn baby. She just had a baby and she was there on Zoom, like with the baby in the hospital. Everyone's like, your baby's a beautiful, congratulations. You know, you saw the most incredible things. Things people would set it up uh, like at their dinner table, like whole families are having dinner, and it's at the dinner table, and you're just watching them have dinner, or like, you know, moms putting their babies to bed. It was this all like the entire spectrum of what you imagine life stuck at home looks like in the pandemic. People were experiencing that in the club, like they were just having it there, almost as as like the witness to their life, because we were so alone, and, and it was a way to sort of not. It wasn't just a place to you know party and drink and dress up it was also really company when people didn't have anything else
0: but I mean this is banging club music it's oh yeah oh
2: yeah oh yeah no it's banging club music yes yes it's it, it was very surreal like the things you would see were just so surreal I saw this father and son like on a camping trip the middle of the forest Pitching a tent, I don't even know how they got internet out there. It was so bizarre. It was so bizarre. But that was the fun of it. Like you never knew what you were going to see
0: when you were there. It's definitely there's a wonderful sense of voyeurism mm-hmm. because not only are you seeing the people, but you kind of like voyeuring into you know the backgrounds and the living rooms and like, right. like we all do on Zoom, right. like oh what books are on the shelves exactly. And so and so with all of these you know thousands of windows that are open and. Ha- How did you decide? Because your short is seven minutes. I mean, how did you (laughs) decide who you were going to put in your short? Oh,
2: my gosh. It was so hard because, like (laughs) I said, I was there every night for two months and I recorded the party every night for two months. And most nights it's six hours long. So I had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours. It became sort of an obsessive thing, honestly. It was I probably could have done it more efficiently. But (laughs) um, so... Yeah, so I did that, and then I also had this... I wasn't sure what shape this film was going to take, so I thought, should there be interviews? I didn't know. And so I would sort of... I was like sort of casting the film, and I would scroll through these, you know, these 50 pages of little Zoom boxes, and if I found someone who I thought was doing something interesting, or they looked, you know, they looked interesting, I I would um, private message them on Zoom and be like, hey, I'm Aurora Brockman, I'm making a documentary, and most of the time people thought I was a creep, and they, you know, because it's just, you don't see my face, you just see a, a random message from a stranger asking to be in a movie, so most of the time I'd be ignored, but sometimes people would respond, and we would exchange contact information, and and then later we would set up like face-to-face zoom calls and so I met the most incredible people from all around the world and we would talk for hours because this was the very beginning of the pandemic and now I feel like there's more of a discourse about like mental health and sort of the toll this is taking on us but in the early weeks and months we didn't really have time to process because it was just this rapid shift from life as we know it to life in lockdown and so um we would, we would share just about our lives. I met really incredible people. I met this woman who is Iranian who had just moved to Canada because she's a lesbian and she wasn't able to live openly as a lesbian in Iran. So she moved to Canada and then right as she came, the pandemic hit. And so she was stuck in her house and she was like, I left my entire family in Iran to live this life here. And now I'm stuck and, and, and I'm stuck in my house. And so we, you know, commiserated about what that was like for her. And I met This another person um, named Giselle, who was in Bolivia, who lived at home with uh, their parents. They were young. They were 20. And their parents didn't know they were queer, and they'd never been to a queer club before. They'd never been to a queer space. And every night, they would lock the door to their room, and they'd put their headphones on, and they would dance at club quarantine. And they'd never never, even—they'd never—this was their first time in a queer environment, and they were able to do it because this club was accessible to people when— clubs when a club like this wouldn't have been accessible to them um so yeah it, it was incredible and then in the film you see there's a doctor um and the doctor you see in the film is this man named hussein and he was um a doctor who was working exclusively with covid patients in new york at the height of the pandemic and he would zoom in on his shifts in the hospital and he was completely isolated because he was working with covid patients and uh he couldn't he knew he could be infected at any time. He couldn't interact with people. He was encountering a lot of death and a, just a lot of heartache in the hospital. And this was, he told me that this was his way of reminding himself that there were still people out there who were enjoying their lives and finding joy in the middle of the pandemic. So the club really put me in touch with like people I would have never otherwise met in this time of immense isolation and um, it was really incredible. Yeah, it was really incredible.
0: That is a very uh, kind of bittersweet moment. And I, c- I can't remember if it's right at the very end of the documentary where you watch the doctor mm-hmm. put on all his PPE yeah, and go back yeah. out. And so you've, you've got this kind of fun, joyous, crazy world of clubbers mm-hmm. in their home. And then you see the doctor put his equipment on. Right. And, and it's sort of this reminder of like why we're all here. Right. Yeah. So what were you doing? Were you dancing? whilst you were watching this, I mean, what was your act to do? Were you the one eating the pizza or <laughs>
2: well because I went every night I kind of did the spectrum of things you know it was like on a Tuesday I was probably eating the pizza but then on the weekend I'd be like you know if I'm gonna be here every night I should have fun so on the weekend I would dress up and like I would go all out and you know I'd have like a glass of wine or something Um, but then some days I was literally like screen was on and I was laying in my bed like I have a photo of me that I took in this process of like, it was like a salad bowl on my chest. And I'm just sort of like, please let this end. But (laughs) it was sort of what I was living for, was making this film. I had nothing else. And so I felt really committed, like, I want to be there to witness everything that happens. I want to really understand the space before I try and depict it. And so um, I did a range of things, for sure. But it was really fun because I got... I became a regular, and I knew all the other regulars, and when they would see you, uh, everyone would be like, oh, yeah, Aurora's here, and they'd shout you out, and even if I was eating my pizza, I would get up and do a little dance, you know, just to please the audience, (laughs) so it was really, um, I I did a range of things. It definitely got fatiguing at times, but it was also the thing that kept me going, and
0: have you taken any of those virtual relationships into and mm-hmm. in, now into the real world? I mean, mm-hmm. are you in touch and these have become great friends and you plan on seeing them? And- there, definitely. I've I, I'm still
2: in touch with everyone who's in the film and even people who aren't in the film. Um, I haven't actually met any of them in person because of the pandemic, of course. But I would I would love to. I know that the hosts of the party um, we're actually sort of thinking about maybe. I don't know if I'm not supposed to say this, but we're sort of developing like a a TV show based on the party, like how queer nightlife emerges post-pandemic. And so um, hopefully there will be irl in real life club quarantine parties and we're going to try and have a reunion where all these people who've built relationships over the internet can finally come together in person and like experience each other
0: now you say this not on every night any longer is it still happening at all
2: it does still happen yes um it used to be nightly and now it happens um most friday and saturday nights it does still happen if you were to go to Look up club quarantine on Instagram. You can find the parties, and uh, they like post the link to the Zoom in their bio at. Uh, 9 p.m. when the party starts, and you can log into the party that way.
0: Now, there is another club quarantine that is mm-hmm. not the same. I think it's an L.A. DJ. I, yes, a DJ D-Nice. Or D-Nice, something. exactly. Yes. And that, that is not what we're talking about. Not
2: yet. what we're talking different about. No, quarantine. Totally different club quarantine. <laughs>
0: okay. Yes, yes, yes. But sometimes they get confused. <laughs> so you're short, as well as being shown here, and it plays with a movie called Inside the Red Brick Wall, and mm-hmm. it's showing tonight and tomorrow. Yes. What is the onward journey for this mm. film? It's also available on the New York Times Docs. Yes, so yes. You can see it online as well. It's it's on the New York Times
2: Docs, so it, it's visible for anyone anywhere in the world right now. Um, so it's playing here at True Falls. It's going to have another uh, screening at an Asian American film festival called CamFest, and then it's also going to be screening at the Palm Springs Shorts Fest in june um and yeah just sort of continuing its festival life and we'll see what happens i'm still just trying to take it as far as it'll go and see yeah
0: are you planning on being with us at any future festivals
2: i'm going to go in person i just found out that i got into palm springs and palm springs is happening in person so i will be there in person for palms for palm springs um Yes, yes, yes. And then, like I said, maybe a TV show. We'll
0: see what happens with that. But yes, that is exciting. I'm sure Mm -hmm. there's going to be a lot of TV and film (laughs) in the future about Mm -hmm. this time and all these Mm -hmm. inventions and creativity that came out of this and these new spaces well aurora brackman's short called club quarantine plays with a feature documentary called inside the bread brick wall and that's tonight at the 12 point screen at stevens lake park and tomorrow night at the executive drive-in and i believe you can still get tickets for certainly tonight um aurora i feel sure that we are going to see you back at true false again in future years more documentaries but thank you so much for coming to see us this weekend thank you so much i'm so happy to be here Well, that is it for another week. Individual tickets are still available for many of the films this weekend. And if rain stops play, you will get a direct link to the Fest's virtual platform. And that means you can just watch from your sofa speaking of the arts episodes are available as podcasts which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm or you can also connect through the kopn website or on spotify thank you so much to my guests today film directors peter nix and aurora brackman thanks also to guitarist yasmin williams whose song restless heart opens and closes the show each week and to my good friend and sound engineer mike hagan reunited for the first time since before lockdown Finally, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more Peaks Behind the Arts Curtain. Until then, stay arty mid-Missouri!